0: I believe leaders today in their organizations have truly become what I call culture caretakers in their organizations. And that's the responsibility of taking care of others. Caretaker, it's associated with messy work. I truly believe that leadership is about taking care of the people responsible for the work, not just the work itself. There's supervisors and managers that just don't wanna get involved in the mental health or the wellness aspect of being a supervisor. I'm like, it's not your job to become a mental health professional. And you need to get comfortable with just having a conversation to say, what's going on, you talk to me, and then, and then transition them, be a conduit to them getting help, and not just sitting around for eight to 10 years wondering out what they should do.
1: Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast, brought to you by Carnivera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. We're back here for podcast episode 116 with our very special guest, Ian Adair. Ian is coming to us from Tampa Bay, he is the executive director of the Grace Point Foundation, which is all about mental health. The title today is Stronger Than Stigma, leading at the intersection of business and mental health. And that's exactly where Ian lives and breathes, at that intersection of mental health awareness leadership and workplace mental health. It is going to be a challenging conversation, a rich, deep, impactful conversation about the state of mental health, the role of leadership in impacting mental health going forward, especially the mental health of our team members. And as Ian will share, if we're not prepared to lead our people and take care of our people, support our people with their mental health challenges, as well as their work challenges, It is time for a change in leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life.
2: We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life.
1: We are thrilled to be back here and have a fascinating guest. Yes, I'm going to raise the bar on Ian Adair right now. You oh. must meet the minimum bar of fascination. <laughs> I've had an opportunity to get to know Ian here in the Tampa Bay area, uh, and and frankly, being really honest, he is an icon here in the Tampa Bay area. If you walk around, everybody knows Ian Adair because of the work he's doing. Uh, he is a nonprofit industry influencer. He's a TEDx speaker. He's a recognized expert in leadership, fundraising, and nonprofit management. Uh, in addition to his role as the <clears throat> executive director of Grace Point Foundation. We'll learn more about that in a moment. He's a speaker, author, advocate for mental health awareness and addressing mental health in the workplace. Uh, his book is Stronger Than Stigma, A Call to Action, Stories of Grief, Loss, and Inspiration. I believe he's also working on another book this year. Uh, and just quick point on Grace Point. Uh, it's the philanthropic arm of Grace Point, one of the largest behavioral health organizations in the state of Florida. Impacts more than 30,000 lives, children, adults every year, wow. offering mental health, medical, and addiction services in the Tampa Bay area. And in case you're wondering, even still, if you should listen, uh, in 2016, Ian was chosen one of the top 100 must-follow giving influencers on Twitter. He was also, in 2019, named one of the top 100 charity industry influencers on social media in the world. And last year was recognized as one of 30 nonprofit founders that will impact the world in 2020 by Cause Artist, a global community and social enterprise platform. So I say that Ian's a great guy. We've had a lot of fun together. We played golf together. We drank margaritas together. And he's the real deal. This is a guy that brings his heart to his work and a leadership. I know you're going to love this conversation. So, awesome. welcome, Ian.
0: Thank you so much, Uh, Jeff. You cannot throw out icon, then read a bio. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot of pressure, and to bring on a mental health advocate and have that much stress so early in the interview. Um, I just saw you. Yeah, I'm not happy right now. I'm a little. I'm a little. I feel. I feel the pressure, but I'm going to try to try to push through. I feel like you have the tools
1: for it, Ian. You have the tools to navigate this space. So, Ian, give us a little bit of the Ian Adair backstory.
0: Wow. Okay. So, uh, you want comic book one kind of a thing or uh, a little bit of the bio? Uh,
1: Well, Comic-Con one, perhaps.
0: (laughs) It's, uh, you know, anytime I talk about uh, my past, normally I just kind of bring up the fact that I've had a lot of incredible opportunities as I was navigating what I wanted to do to get involved in the philanthropic social service space. I tell people a lot all the time. If you just look at my LinkedIn profile, you might think I'm in the witness protection program because it looks like I've traveled through the education space, the corporate space, the philanthropic space. I feel really comfortable uh, running small nonprofits. This is my third organization to run the Grace Point Foundation. I think, kind of, to conclude the comic book one, I like to say that I've spent about the last 10 years of my career really focused on the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, which led me to mental health, where I have a strong personal connection. I know we'll talk a little bit more about that later, um, but it's been, uh, it's been a fun ride. I love running organizations. I love interacting with people, uh, board members, community members, creating community partnerships. And so that kind of led me all over the map a little bit uh, from the Midwest to the Seattle area, now to here in Tampa for the last five years.
1: So Ian, let, let's talk about, to start with the idea, the concept of mental health. Uh, I, my personal opinion is that in the United States, we're in, we're beyond crisis when it comes to mental health. I, it, it's it not getting attention. I mean, it's starting to get attention. It's not getting funded. I personally think if we could address the mental health issues in this country, we'd address 90% of all the rest of the issues. So give us your take on the state of mental health and what we have to serve that community today.
0: Yeah, I, I think if there if anything has happened to help elevate the conversation, I think COVID helped do that. COVID doesn't have a lot of silver linings as we know, but when you when you learn and do any just you know remedial search on mental health, you start to see figures that can be a little alarming. 20, 20 to 24 percent of the total US population is struggling with a mental health condition. One in five people uh, you know, will experience a mental health condition in any given year. Um, the amount of money that depression and anxiety is causing loss in the workplace is over like $225 billion. It's just, it's, it's an enormous thing. But the, the thing about mental health that's so disturbing is that anyone who's experiencing any kind of condition always immediately feels like they're the only one experiencing it. And then they don't seek help because of that. And then we have, then we have words like stigma that get in the way of how, how, how perceived that issue really is uh, and how severe it is. And so, um, you know, words like mental illness and addiction, uh, suicide, profound grief and loss can immediately impact and change a life forever. We just need to get into a space in this country and really all over the world where we can talk about these things and get the help we need immediately so that there's, there's no difference between mental health and physical health we take them both seriously, we understand the seriousness of both of them, and we can move forward uh, to getting the help we need. When you're talking about mental
2: health, I, I tend to have a lot of different things popping around my head as to what that actually means. And so it's, I, I would guess it's dealing with depression, it's dealing with um, you know, a lot of other issues. How would you define that as something that can, somebody can say, oh, I have that, now I know that I need to get treatment?
0: Well, i think when you talk about a mental health condition it's there's a lot of things that come involved with that because whenever we experiencing anything on our own we always try to self-diagnose that's just who we are it's easy nowadays for somebody just to uh get get on the get on your computer and try to figure out what's wrong with you uh but i mean there's a wide range of conditions that make up what mental what mental health challenge is the most common our depression and anxiety issues, but to, you know, further down the continuum, there's schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and and other things. I think uh, what we forget is there's a lot of things that impact us environmentally as well. We don't know how we're going to react if somebody close to us uh, unexpectedly dies or a traumatic event or someone we know dies by suicide. Uh, So there's a lot of things that can impact us emotionally and mentally and That's when we talk about overall mental health, and we talk about one in five will experience a mental health condition in a given year. I know a lot of people, just like probably uh, both of you, that have experienced a traumatic event and went through uh, a period of their life where they suffered from profound grief and loss. And it took them a while to come out of that, whether they had to see counseling, whether they had to get medication, whether they had to change their environment. A lot of things can lead to getting what what I call, and what a lot of other people in the mental health profession call, back on that path to wellness, to where you're feeling better about yourself, back to that state where you were kind of before an incident or a traumatic, a traumatic experience, um, to where you can talk about it. And then uh, in, in some cases, once you've pushed through that and got better yourself, usually you're left in a position where you want to seek out and help others that might be experiencing that same thing.
2: It seems like there's there's a whole bunch of people, based on the the issues that we have in a lot of families nowadays, that some people don't even start off with a solid foundation. And so how would they know that they have issues to deal with?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's funny when you, when you, when you talk about that, because we can wake up and feel different. You know, we can wake up and say, I'm having more negative thoughts than I used to, or I'm having trouble getting out of bed, or I'm feeling more anxious about work than I ever have. And sometimes we, we, we move those feelings aside and, and say they're stress-related. Um, but a lot of times they're mental health-related. And I think we forget how much times mental health and mental illness also impact our physical health. And so we might mask symptoms of physical ailments that are actually related to mental illness. And so, um, you know, when you, when you look at just the, the pure definition of, of mental health, a person's condition uh, with regard to their physical or mental or emotional well-being, uh, that encompasses a lot of things and nobody ever wants to be perceived by others or by ourselves as feeling vulnerable or weak because we conditioned to fight that feeling. And so if you look at the research today and what it's saying, it is really kind of alarming that on the onset of feeling something, no matter what that something is, mm-hmm. as, as heavy and as serious as suicidal thoughts or suicide ideation, to just consistent depression and you're just kind of wondering where this is coming from, uh, it takes people on average eight to ten years before they seek help to address that. Wow! And and that's where that's where I see the the biggest the biggest area of concern mm. is because we would never wait that long uh, for a physical ailment. We'd never wait that long uh, to guess or hopefully something physical would go away and. Mm there therein lies probably the biggest problem when it concerns the disparity between mental health and physical health
1: let's talk about that disparity and and we often like to go into questions about what's in the way of that change and i heard two things and i have my own guess but one is the stigma idea you know there's a stigma it's seen as a weakness so i don't want anybody to know i'm not going to talk to anybody i'm going to cover it up i'm going to pretend it's something else so there's the stigma side And then there's the side of people just don't genuinely know. They know something's off and they're trying to self-diagnose. But I could also see that my my challenge in diagnosing would be from the stigma too. So are those separate things or do we ultimately come back to stigma as the real challenge here?
0: I think you ultimately come back to stigma. You really can't talk about mental health without understanding stigma and the power that it has over people, and I think what you brought up was great to bring this up because it's a great transition. Stigma, really, there's really two types of stigma. There's social stigma, which involves um, like the prejudiced attitudes that others have around mental illness, and, and that's what we see—the way people react to things or the way people joke about people that might be suffering. Um, and you know, when, when people talk about, well, someone's someone's weak right now, or someone's being selfish, uh, and that's the social side of stigma. And then there's that self-perceived stigma that you you were just mentioning, Jeff which really involves the internalized stigma that a person with mental illness or suffering from a mental health challenge suffers from. So if you just look at the raw definition of stigma and that it's a, it's a mark of disgrace, um, it, it erodes the confidence that mental illnesses are real, that they're treatable. Um, and, and, and that right there, when you, when you package all of that, the, the self-perceived stigma, the social stigma, who's going to get help? Who's going right. to ask for help? And then if you're going to ask for help, there's that fear of when you ask that it's going to be misinterpreted wrong uh, or you might not get the response that you need. The reason why so many people wait eight to 10 years is because usually that first time that they reach out to someone that they trust, whether it's a best friend, mm. a colleague, parent, that initial reaction usually is not a good one. Um, wow. and, that, and, that's what, and that's what kind of perpetuates uh, this to keep, to keep happening.
1: So what about the word? I want to talk about the word for a minute. I, I believe that words are very empowering or disempowering. And it seems that one of the challenges here is with the word mental. Because I grew up, I never heard mental health growing up. I heard mental illness. Hmm. I heard mental illness. And 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 I could see some people saying, well, mental health is just a nicer way of mental illness. And, and even like Craig earlier, when you were asking a question, you said people going to get treatment. Like that word suggests to me, like oh, I have to get treatment. Something's wrong with me. And so I, I don't know. If we can get rid of the word, but how much of the stigma is because that word "mental"? There's something wrong with me.
0: In the well, world "mental," yeah, I mean that's 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 always going to be a little bit of a hangup, I think, for some folks. I think we've gotten to a place to where, uh, you know, mental illness was always that red flag of. You're being labeled with something and nobody wants to be ever, ever be labeled. Um, I think mental health, fortunately enough, we've we've progressed enough in the last 20 years that we talk more about mental health as this over-encompass, you know, of who we are. Are you taking care of yourself physically? Are you taking care of your mental health? And then that leads down to words like self-care and, and all these and wellness and all these other things. And uh, I think mental health probably doesn't have... The connotation it did 20 plus years ago, um, but mental, but illness does. But when we talk about people taking care of their overall mental health, usually that's a combination of several things, both physical and emotional, to make sure they're they're doing well. Uh, you know, I think uh, one of the biggest misconceptions in the mental health space, and, and both you guys have probably seen this, is that we overemphasize the same statistic over and over and over. And I mentioned it earlier in in, in the interview that one in five adults will experience a mental illness in any given year. And when I speak on stage, it's funny. If you look down the aisle of the stage, uh, you can actually see someone in the aisle, look at the four people next to them and wonder <laughs> which one of those four it's going to be. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's you. So right. I, people are willing to roll the, roll the dice today. People are willing to gamble with those numbers. Um, and I, and I, I get upset. Uh, at the awareness, uh, mental health advocacy industry, that that's all they ever promote because five out of five of us have mental health. So why aren't we talking about this in a way uh, that creates a better connection between us uh, and not always look to say, well, this is going to happen at this statistic. And then then people just drop off from listening at, at that. point.
1: I'm not one of the five, I'm not the one. Talk a little bit about gender differences. I read a number of years ago that when you look at depression rates, that they're typically very understated because men are very are least likely to report and seek help for it. Is is that I mean is that just anecdotal or is there evidence between different genders in terms of seeking help for mental ill health issues?
0: yeah some of the statistics are staggering. uh One of the biggest differences has to do with the suicide rate. More women attempt suicide, but more men at, at more women at about probably a little over uh four times attempt suicide, really. but more men are more successful at suicide because we try more violent means hmm. um, and that's alarming and i and I think when you talk about depression rates and anxiety rates. I think it's because of how we were raised. And I think certain generations, we have four generations in the workforce today. So if you look at Gen Z coming right out of college, you look at the largest section of the workforce today is millennial generation. The oldest is like 38, I think. And you got X, which is the smallest. And boomers, I think if you look at Gen X and you look at baby boomers and you look at men and how we were raised in those two generations, we were not raised to disclose anything was wrong with us unless it was a broken bone it's weakness it's weakness and it's you know there's toxic masculinity uh there's there's growing up being not in touch with who we are not being able to talk about emotions talk about feelings um we see uh the incredibly high rate of veteran suicide in this country which is incredibly alarming Mm. we've lost more veterans to, to suicide uh, and then we have an active combat operation. Are you serious in, in this? It's, it's, this is wow. th- these, these statistics are so glaring This show mm-hmm. that we have to start training young men, uh, and boys at an early age that it's okay to talk about when something's wrong. It's okay yeah. not to be okay. It's okay to talk to somebody when you're not feeling, uh, right. Or when you're feeling depressed or when you're feeling anxiety, uh, and we're starting to see that more and more. We're starting to see more younger millennials, uh, especially men, feel more open, uh, talk about, and be more vulnerable when something's wrong. Uh, but we're still have a huge problem at that uh, those two generations at the at the top right now, which is baby boomers and Gen X. Hmm. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I I can tell you, I had a conversation probably in February of this year. I was having lunch and with a friend of mine here in Tampa and he was talking about another friend of his, a professional who was telling him, you know, this year, despite COVID, it's been a great year. Uh, you know, the business is actually up. Uh, I'm in a great place in my career. He's going on about how great things are, but he says, I'm just terrified every day. Hmm. I'm terrified. I have all this anxiety, I have all this stress and there's no reason for me to have it. And he says to him, maybe I'm depressed. And then he says, you know, what? Actually, I don't think I am because you know I'm still able to function not like it's not like I can't get out of bed
0: right, and I, I think that's I think that's a, a great example. That's a huge misconception. We all know high functioning alcoholics in business and in our lives. we all know high functioning drug addicts. there is extremely high functioning uh, people that are that are dealing with mental health challenges I mean just just in I mean my book itself was about interviewing. CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs that are extremely high functioning, who have all dealt with addiction, profound grief and loss, uh, you know, they're in active recovery. So I I think, I think the misconception is that just because you're high functioning, that nothing's wrong with you. Well, you know, there's a lot of really, there's a lot of people that have kind of uh, opened our eyes to that not being true. Kate Spade was high functioning. Anthony Bourdain was high functioning. Robin Williams was high functioning. So we have to we have to forget about our professional success being some kind of deterrent to whether or not we may be depressed or, or suffering from something.
2: In fact, you find some people in the creative realms who are more successful because of their their differences.
0: Yeah, and and and, and, I, and, and, I, and I saw you searching for the word there. It, some people, I have, I have, I have a a couple of friends that actually look at their recovery being their superpower, their bipolar diagnosis being their yeah. superpower. Um, you know, I think there's there's leaders uh, <clears throat> out there. Um, you know, once they've once they've figured out what's going on with them and they've embraced it and they're managing it each and every day, they've become more empathetic leaders. Yeah, and. And that's what we need today. We, we need people to, to, to express empathy with their employees uh, and to deploy gratitude and to have that understanding because that's what the workforce wants today. So when you have leaders that are doing that, it's, it's only makes them more successful and only makes them more high functioning. Do
2: people differentiate between genetic uh, genetically derived things and environmentally derived. So for example, if uh, I, have, my aunt had schizophrenia um, I know people who have bipolar, and I'm, I'm guessing that's more of a chemical uh, imbalance, rather than, you know, they just suddenly got that versus environmental things like PTSD.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, mental health encompasses a lot of things. Uh, you know, when you look at that continuum, the largest mental health conditions out there are the anxiety disorders and depression. Sure. That That's a huge group experiencing that uh, each and every day and as you go further down the continuum at more severe diagnoses that have more chemical imbalances that require medication to function more properly whether that's bipolar 1 bipolar 2 schizophrenia uh, but they all still require a certain amount of uh what we call management to to hmm. be better whether that's environmental management support yeah. system uh you know i've known a lot of people with dual diagnoses that had addiction or d- disorder and uh uh a mental health condition, so you're always looking for what combination of therapies, whether that's uh, counseling, whether that's medication, whether that's environment, yeah. whether that's self-care-based, that works best for you yeah. uh, to go and, to be on your path to wellness.
1: So, Ian, let, let's talk about a topic that I think people avoid even more than mental health as a category, and that's suicide. Hmm. We're, we can't solve the issue here. But to your point, I've had it impact friends in my life. I've had friends who, it turns out, were close, like very close to it. They were ideation, had, had it mapped out, and they, and they turned the corner. Mm. Uh, and I have so many people in my life who've had that happen around them in their lives. And i would never heard someone say, yeah, I saw that coming. Mm. It's the opposite. I didn't see that coming. They seem to have it together. They seem to be fine. They seem to be happy. And so I guess, what are your thoughts on maybe the need for us to have a whole different conversation about suicide? Because wow. there are some tools. I mean, I'm, I'm taking a course coming up next month called QPR, um, familiar with QPR. I can't remember what it stands for. <laughs> It's it's a training to basically educate me on what to look out for in others. Oh wow! And what to do when I see you know potential signs. To give yeah. me some tools, right? So can you speak to that? It's a big <laughs> issue, but speak to that.
0: Yeah, I you know I I tell people all the time uh, I am amazed that we are not talking about suicide more. Um, if you look at the suicide rates in this country. Just statistical alone it's 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 unbelievable you look at the number two cause of death from you know fourteen year olds to thirty four year olds is suicide the number two cause of death uh thirty five year olds to fifty four year olds is the number four cause of death uh fifty five plus it's number eight cause of death. How can we have something so prevalent and not be talking about it and that's just and that's just the the cases uh <clears throat> where uh, the suicide actually happens. Uh, we're not even discussing the amount of times where there's people with multiple attempts. Uh, so it, it's to me that this is not uh, a, a, a topic that has greater importance in our society is, is completely frightening. And I think one of the reasons that is, is because people think if you talk about suicide, that's going to somehow put it in somebody's head to try and attempt to die by suicide. And that's not the case. Actually, the more you talk about it, especially to someone you think might be suffering from suicide ideation or having suicidal thoughts, the more you rationalize it with them and they actually uh, do not try to attempt suicide. So all the research is pointing that we need to talk about it more to help Mm -hmm. decrease it. But the fear was always, the more we talked about it, it would somehow increase uh, uh, in use. So it's, that's where I think we're we're stumbling. It all comes down to what are we comfortable talking about and what are we afraid and who are we afraid to have that conversation with and what are we afraid those outcomes are going to be. So that's why I'm a big advocate of always finding a natural way to talk about mental health, no matter what it is. I mean, this is great. We're having this discussion in Mental Health Awareness Month, which we're mm-hmm. in right now, but w- we need to have this discussion during the holidays when most people with yeah. the mental health condition are suffering the most or feel the most lonely. So there's definitely uh i think suicide needs a greater uh venue so to speak uh it needs a bigger spotlight um but I, I know that takes a lot of people to have to feel really comfortable with their story to be able to share those experiences and i always say that i'm always glad when i get people to share their experiences it took me a long time to share my personal experience with uh, depression and anxiety um, But once you find the right people willing to share, I think they're the ones that are going to make the the most impact uh, because those stories of lived experiences are just more impactful than statistics. And they're the ones that are going to help move the needle.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors.
0: If you enjoy the Leadership
2: Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cardevera.com slash confident to find out more. See you on the inside. Welcome back. So my understanding is that if if there is a prominent person that commits suicide, there tends to be a follow on series of other people that then take their lives. Um, And so that may be one thing to watch out for also is if we, if we notice that, you know, there's, there's somebody that's in the news that just did that, then we probably want to have conversations with those around us who, who may be hurting.
0: Yeah. You know, I think when we look at this, the statistics around suicide, everyone who dies by suicide, and I try not to use the word, uh, committed, I try to use the word died by suicide. Um, you know, usually leaves behind, uh, four to six close friends to feel, to feel that loss. And, and that, so if you're losing 50,000, around 50,000 people a year to suicide, you have over uh, 250 to 300,000 people suffering from profound grief and loss, Mm. you know, uh, because of that. And, you know, that's what we need to talk about. These are what we call suicide survivors. Uh, they, they don't know where to express their grief. They all feel, uh, and I talk to a lot of parents, and I, and I work with some of these folks, and uh, they all feel a tremendous amount of guilt. They all wish yeah. they saw the signs when they, when they finally get to a place where they could look back and, and, and see, well, what, was, what did I miss? Because there's a lot of internal blame when you lose a child to suicide or a best friend to suicide. Oh, yeah. And you start to see that there really were uh, some signs that that you missed, but you you didn't know the signs yourself. So it wasn't something that was apparent to you why it was going on. So when you start seeing people, when you talk about signs of suicide, withdrawing from activities and people that they normally like being around or they're normally used to express for a long time, joy being around, that's a sign. Mm. When you have people that are battling and struggling with insomnia and sleep. That's a sign when you have people not caring so much about their personal appearance or the mm. appearance of where they live and, the, and their home, their room, whatever, whatever it is, depending on how old you are. Uh, that's a sign. And so, but until we again have this discussion, and the discussion just isn't about, uh, you know, dying by suicide or people uh, uh, or who's died by suicide or how they've died by suicide, the discussion is what did they go through to lead up to that moment? uh and I tell people all the time it's that's the that's the it's the tough conversation, but that's the one we need to have
1: what's well, interesting to say this I, one of the gifts I got is a, a very good friend of mine a few years ago came very close uh, he he was turns out he had was well into ideation, had a scheduled method and everything, but he chose not to, and the gift was afterwards he shared with me and some others that reality and that journey and he was even telling us what the signs were wow that i was like because i was like so that actually was a gift because then i it wasn't just for him i could say oh you know i kind of wondered about that but i didn't know what i was wondering yeah and by having that conversation because he was willing to have that it was really a gift to myself and others to say wow now i know what that feeling is for me that was just that huh to, oh, huh. Mm. And uh, everybody's different, but I think you're right. And I mean, this is your space that there's so much stigma. I keep coming back to that word. I don't want to believe that's the case. And I think part of it is if I don't know what to do with that information, I'm going to avoid that information. Mm. Yeah, right. that's a, That I could go there. I'm going to avoid it because I don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to just pretend it's not there.
0: Right. Well, I mean, we we keep going back to it. But that's what we need to go back to. I mean, it's uh, the the thing about talking about this. Let's just look at the last six, seven years. What what's happened? We've actually seen mental health, uh, suicide, um, anxiety orders, addiction orders. They become more like we'd say trending topics in the news cycle. You see them on the local news. You see them on the national news. You see them in social media. And I think kind of what's helped. You know, push this discussion forward is you you have more celebrities, Olympians, athletes, uh, you know, people in Hollywood, uh, people that have internet fame. You know, they have large social followings. They've started to come out more about their battles with addiction. uh, You know, whether it's uh, anxiety, depression, but we give that we give those folks a little what I call air cover, or uh, you know, a little a little more forgiveness because. Um, they're under so much public scrutiny, we almost as the regular folks without the Pavarazzi and the following and the the scrutiny, we almost believe at some point that something's going to happen. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to be scrutinized in magazines and radio shows and, and, uh, you know, news stories all the time and not feel some amount of pressure. But where the conversation is falling incredibly short is when it talks about everybody else, a greater majority of us, the working professionals, the retired seniors, uh, the students, because when we disclose, uh, we honestly have a true genuine fear that we're going to lose one of the three things that matters most in our lives. And that's our, our friends, our family and our jobs. And mm-hmm. you know, disclosing a mental illness shouldn't mean... Uh, or an addiction shouldn't mean losing anything uh, or anyone that should be supporting you. But for so many, that fear is real. Uh, and so that's where we are. So you have to keep going back to, to stigma. And I'm, and I'm glad that professional athletes and, and performing artists are keeping the discussion further, but we have to start allowing uh, that same kind of air cover, same kind of empathy, same kind of forgiveness to each other.
1: So so let's shift gears. And as I'm saying the word shifting gears, I'm realizing it's not really a shift. It's just kind of which angle. And that's the workplace. Because to me, as I was thinking, mental health in the workplace is not really a thing. In the (laughs) sense that mental health is a thing for people and people go to work. And so therefore, it becomes part of the workplace. And I'm going to just throw out one statistic to trigger this. I'm sure you saw this. And it was in the Tampa Bay Business Journal, or maybe you didn't after our discussion. But this was in March of 2021, and they were saying that uh, the risk of depression was up 145% from February of 2020. Uh, The risk of anxiety order was up 80% from February of 2020. Uh, So none of that, I don't think that surprises anyone. But my question is, what are you seeing happening in the workplace To help with that or are you not seeing it because that to me is an opportunity we have in business leadership to be part of the solution and my bias is too many leaders say well it sucks that people are struggling but that's not my job Hmm.
0: yeah no you're you're exactly right and here's what i say to those leaders whether it's uh listening through a podcast or directly to their face uh If you care about your organization, you want your organization to grow and thrive, Uh, and if if you're not a human-to-human person, if that doesn't resonate with you, let me tell you how it's going to affect your bottom line. Mental health (laughs) affects every single aspect of a company. Uh, Employee retention, employee recruitment of top talent, financial bottom line uh and 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 I get these folks I I start to I start to win them over when I say this I don't know if winning them over is the right way but they start to get curious and I go you have to understand that the number one reason in this country for loss of productivity and absenteeism in the workplace is mental illness and it's and it's mental illness over every other chronic condition combined mm. from back pain wow. to asthma uh to everything else and when you have something like mental health impacting like I said earlier, uh, to the tune of almost $250 billion in this country, if you're only motivated by your balance sheet, that should alarm you. But if you're also one of those leaders, and, and, and I think anyone who's probably Gen X, 45 years old and up, we were, we were trained differently. We were managed differently. We weren't really, we didn't have a lot of empathetic leaders. There wasn't a lot of sympathy when yeah. something happened in our lives. We were expected to show up. Uh, no matter what. And that's not how a majority of the workforce is today. If you got 70% of the workforce, that's millennial or Gen Z, and they're asking for things very different than what we asked for when we were moving up. Because remember, all we cared about, because all we were told to care about was salary and title. And we jumped for the craziest things. I mean, somebody would dangle something in front of me like, wait, you're going to change me from a manager to a director? wow, I might just move across the country for that. Not even thinking that I was already in a safe space. I was in yeah. a, I was in a great work culture. Um, I worked with great people. And then you look at the amount of money that they would offer us. You take, you know, it's like, I, I jumped one time for like $3,000 in salary. That's like 25 after taxes. That's like 25 lunches at Chili's. I mean, it didn't make, it made no sense, but that's how we were conditioned right. to be. The workforce today is so just incredibly different. I, they want mentorship. They want sponsorship. They want their company to provide the latest technology. They want a flexible work schedule, which was, as everyone knows, completely taboo before COVID. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, they want, they want their company uh, to care about their mental health and wellness, and they want to feel like they have a voice or at least access to leadership. So if those are their top things. And I have these C suite folks over here saying, Well, nobody held my hand or told me it was okay (laughs) when I was growing up. I'm like, Well, guess what? I know you don't want to do it. I know it's new to you. And nobody who gets to a leadership level wants to hear that they need continuing education and training (laughs) to be more effective because they thought, Hey, I'm I'm at the mountaintop. What do you mean I need to to learn something new? Yeah, you do. The world has changed. It's changed. and, And leadership today really is more. It's it's more about caring about the people that are performing the work than the work itself, because if you don't yeah. start making that switch today, you're not only going to lose your best people, you're going to be completely unable to recruit top talent, and then you're going to start to see the engagement and the morale within your organization take a huge nosedive.
2: Yeah, so true. And you know, one of the things I, I constantly hear when people are talking about looking for a new job, sometimes they're not even thinking about title and and. Things like that, they're just like, okay, what's the benefits package? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's no, all they it, care about.
0: It, it, it's just what it's, it's, uh, we've come to realize that if we're going to spend a majority of our time at work, like we all know we are, yeah, then we, we want to go to a place where we feel good, comfortable, um, safe. And, you mm. know, and people are realizing that that feeling, um, and being around good people and, and, and a good work culture and a good work environment is better than maybe an additional three to five thousand dollars.
2: Totally. And what if what about the bullying side of things? Because it sounds like if we're in an environment where maybe we bring up something that we go on something that's happening in our lives, you know, maybe I'm I'm uh, dealing with depression right now or whatever it is, then you know we mention something and then somebody else just you know through bullying is, is now talking about me, you know, either in front of me or behind me somehow undermining me.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, we, the number one, one of the number one reasons why people leave a job today is because they don't get along with somebody. And if that's yeah. somebody usually is their manager, right. But then we also, if it's not their manager, we have to go by uh, usually what's the next phrase out of their mouth is I'm in a toxic work culture mm, yeah. and and a toxic work culture. Isn't, you know every time it's Donut Friday, they don't have glaze. The toxic <laughs> work culture is there's somebody there that physically uh you know and emotionally it affects me because of because of whatever yeah. it is a bullying or mistreatment uh and we see that all the time and you know it doesn't I, I always tell leaders all the time if you have a manager that has a revolving door on their team, mm. well, at some point you need to see what the common denominator is, yeah. For what's going on, it's probably that manager, and we have to make sure uh, that we provide not just work performance improvement plans, or you didn't meet your KPIs, so you know you're on you're on some kind of double secret animal house probation. We want to make sure that we get across the people that if we're gonna if we're gonna want to keep the right people, uh, attract the right people, we need to make sure our current people are getting the training. Uh, whether it's wellness training, leadership training, managerial training that they need to be able to manage what is the majority of the workforce today.
2: Well, you said a key word when that was safety. And and Jeff talks about the return on safety as being a pretty big issue of, you know, when we create safe environments and we we don't tolerate the crap that that people do, that has lots of different rewards for us.
0: Yeah. You know, a term I like to use is uh, I believe leaders today in their organizations have truly become what I call culture caretakers Mm -hmm. in their organizations. And that's the responsibility of taking care of others. Now, if you would have mentioned that in an MBA class in 1995, (laughs) you would have been laughed out the room, but you know, caretaker it's, it's associated, it's, it's associated with messy work and that's what, and that's what it is today. And, um, you know, like I said before, I, I truly believe that leadership is about taking care of the people responsible for the work, not just the work itself. It's, and I yeah. tell leaders all the time who push back, like Jeff mentioned earlier, that there's supervisors and managers that just don't want to get involved in the mental health or uh, the wellness aspect of being a supervisor. I'm like, it's not your job to become a mental health professional, but it right. is your job to notice when your people are in trouble. Or when your people aren't performing, it's not just performing on a spreadsheet. It's what seems different about this person over the last week. Where's their engagement level? You know, where's their attitude at? It's not just productivity that's fallen off. I've noticed a change in them. And you need to get comfortable with just having a conversation to say, what's going on? You can talk to me and then then transition them, be a conduit to them getting help and not just sitting around for eight to 10 years wondering out what they should do.
1: Well, let's talk about what I'm going to label a perfect storm in this whole scenario, Ian. We know that most people only change if there's enough pain. wish that wasn't true, but that's typically what gets people's attention. People are typically avoiding pain versus moving towards something they want. And in this issue, often what I feel like is not enough people are leaving these, these places. And I think the perfect storm is you've got leaders who sort of know this, but they're not comfortable. They've not been led that way before. They don't know how to do it. They feel vulnerable, all those things. And then you have the people who say, I hate my job. I hate my job, but they stay. So they do the, I quit, but I stayed. Hmm. So now the companies aren't feeling the pain because I've heard this conversation over the last year, all these people are going to leave their jobs because they weren't cared for during COVID. And now I'm starting to say, you know what? I don't know. That's really going to happen. It's probably going to be the same percentages because people are terrified to move themselves.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I I, I think I think to go along with that perfect storm, uh, since you're using a movie reference that in this question makes you George Clooney, and uh, you know me, Mark Wahlberg. Uh, but what both I both
1: very I, good looking <laughs> men, by the way. I <laughs>
0: But it's, uh, you know, you're also not just in COVID, you're also in a financial crisis. So people are scared to leave. Um, so there's a number of reasons why you wouldn't leave, but there's also a number of reasons why you would. I mean, I, let me go back to a previous statement I said. Remember when remember when asking for a flexible work schedule was about the most taboo thing you could ask for in the history of <laughs> business? You know, and I keep telling people if a flexible work schedule is one of the top four three to four things that everyone in the largest segment, I keep going back to this largest segment of the workforce once, then why aren't we offering it? And then we had COVID. And COVID proved, every research has proven that when we started to take people to do remote work or some hybrid model in the last six months, as we transitioned back, we started to see that people were actually more productive, working longer, and taking less time off. So wait a second, you know, that, that, and now and now businesses are like, wait, I can get rid of my brick and mortar footprint, save money. My people are going to take less time off, save money. They're going to work longer, you know, more money, more money. <laughs> and then they're doing all of this though, at the detriment of the worker, because working from home today is not working from home two years ago. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm working from home. My wife has a job. She's working from home, 150 square, lovely square feet away. So she's busy. My son's been e-learning. That wasn't working from home a year and a half ago. Yeah. Working from home was very different, And with people are now taking less time off, especially through COVID, to take care of themselves, what's the first thing you ask when anyone you know says they're taking some time off? Where are you going? Well, there's nowhere to go during COVID. <laughs> I mean we're, I mean, I actually told my, uh, my board president, I go, "Look, I'm going to the guest room. I haven't been in that room yet. <laughs> And now we've turned the guest room into my office. This is ridiculous. So, you know, if you and if you have to have PTO to be on quarantine, or you can't go anywhere. If you go anywhere, you got to come back, you got to be on quarantine. So nobody has that extra PTO to do that. So then we're like, okay, we'll just, you know, we'll let it ride and we'll bank it some more. So you have right now in a tremendous amount of the workforce with an incredible amount of PTO stored up uh, and still really no place to go. And it's... To me, it's frightening. To me, there's I think there's a lot uh happening right now uh that is gonna it's it's gonna be left with what I call uh the epidemic within the pandemic. And that's where you're gonna have a number of organizations and corporations and businesses are gonna be left with trying to figure out how to take care of their people because all of this is building up. And I truly believe we've we've entered. <clears throat> excuse me, into the most difficult part of the pandemic because the adrenaline's worn off. The fear has, has worn off, uh, but the crisis, uh, even though it's subsiding, there's still a number of challenges that remain. Uh, and and it, right now, the big thing is who's transitioning back to work, whose organizations have you know, sh- shrunk their footprint and want to do a, you know, a, a hybrid model. Who's saying, well, go ahead and just stay, stay at home. That's working so well for us. Well, that's not working so well for everybody. That's true. Uh, so there's a lot of that going on. Wow. Boy,
1: well, you just, I, I don't know if you intended it to, but you just hit me with um, a huge issue. That, And I'll give you two extremes. So I just heard last week, a huge organization. I won't name it. I'm talking about billion dollar plus that they're trying to figure out what to do to bring people back. And what they did was the CEO, without any counsel from any of his reports, None. Decided it was gonna be um, four days a week in the office. Ouch. Starting this fall, and you can work remotely one day a week. Brought his reports in, said, here's what I've decided. There's not gonna be a discussion. I know some of you don't like it. This is what it is. We're not discussing anymore. So this is to me way over here, this extreme. The other extreme which you just hit on is, a lot of people workers are saying i want more freedom i want the flexibility even though some of them don't because they're feeling isolated mental health issue yeah. but those who are saying they want it the reality is many of them are working longer hours they're working harder and they're actually experiencing more higher rates of burnout than in their in their office yet they're saying they want it so we've got a collision of mental health issues here people are asking for a work environment that actually is worse for them mentally And don't realize it
2: or.
0: Yeah,
2: I I I can't imagine having to have small kids at home and trying to work full time and take care of the kids and everything else going on.
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, and to Craig's point, you know, we're still in that where a lot of people are still e-learning. A lot of people are still afraid to send their kids to school. Now it's getting better. And and like I said, it is subsiding. You remember eight weeks ago, the vaccination age was 55 plus. Now it's 12 plus. Mm. So people are, we're moving to a place where people are going to get more comfortable being in, in, in spaces together. Um, but yeah, I think businesses, you have these two continuums where people are making arbitrary decisions. Usually the people making a decision, like the one you said, that's far out here seeing four, four days in one day out. Those are the leaders that to them, that is progressive to them. <laughs> that is work. That is a flexible work schedule because they're trying to say, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and probably guess that person is, uh, over, over 50, but, um, <laughs> but it's, uh, Bingo. You know, it's a, probably over, it's probably closer to 60, but the the thing about it is, uh, they're going to be surprised how many people are going to be like, Oh, okay. Well, now that I start to see all these other companies, what they're doing, yep. uh, I'm going to go over here because they want- they want, flexibil- they want that flexibility. They want that flexibility. You just can't ignore. And I, I get in trouble saying this at nonprofit conferences all the time because we're the, we're the worst. I mean, it's easier to change history than a history book about nonprofit management. Wow. Uh, we're the worst about it because most of the people leading organizations today are so traditional. I know CEOs and executive directors that refuse to leave their office during COVID like, they were the only ones in the building because that's their mentality. They're like, no, I'm not going anywhere. Everyone else can work from home and socially distance. I'm not going anywhere. By the way, 10 out of 10 of them got COVID. But uh, <laughs> the other part about that is that meant nothing. That did nothing. That, that, that was no leadership to their to their people. Uh, you know, and I, and I challenge them when they get upset, when I talk to them about this, I go, as soon as you can find the white paper that shows me the organization, corporate and or nonprofit that went bankrupt because of a flexible work schedule, I'll stop talking about it. But if you want your company to grow, if you want your company to, to be progressive and to do all these big things and and to reach your strategic plan, you got to be willing to work with, uh, you know a workforce that does things a little bit differently. And it's but, not that it's not that they're lazy because they'll work till three in the morning right. when you're in bed by 9 p.m.
2: I think one of the key parts here is if you want great people, what are they asking for? Is it, is it that the majority of people who are high performers, are they wanting to work from home or is it a mix? And so if, if you're saying, okay, I want the best people in my company, everybody does, but not everybody can because they don't have the the right environment, benefits, the the leadership structure, whatever those things are. And so, if you're able to provide those, of course, you can get better quality people because they're going to go where they can. That also meets their needs.
0: A hundred percent, Craig. Again, i I'm, I always go back to it, and and sometimes I sound like a broken record, but. You got to understand what it is, what people want. Yeah. And, and that's right up there. Well, how do you do that, Ian? Yeah. Yeah. It's how do you understand what people want? Yeah. You're going to have to ask them. I know it's ask, do the, do the deep, the deep dive and and ask your people, which I know is terrifying (sighs) for a lot of leadership and CEOs. You mean, they're Um, not just going to tell me. Yeah. Well, well, you're going to have that one day off to think about it. (laughs) So it's, you know, when I, when I talk to leaders uh, about this, that, that aspect alone, what you're talking about is terrifying because they got to this leadership role by thinking that nobody else was involved in that success. And now you're saying, you're telling me that if I want to succeed now beyond what i've what i've achieved already today or the only way i'm going to go further is if i'm now inclusive in my leadership completely greek to them it, it's just it's just completely foreign and and that's where we're going to see uh some of these bigger companies are going to have uh over the next i think 5 5 to 10 years some of the biggest drop uh in growth than we've ever seen and and you're going to see the rise of smaller companies just because they're willing uh, to provide people with what they're saying they want, uh, and not have to worry that they can't pay them the same as maybe a fortune 500. Yep.
1: So you may have, you may have touched on some of these and we've talked a lot about the problem, the challenges, the gaps, but what are some of the solutions that you would offer to these leaders? I mean, I get the high level of, yeah, ask your people and find out what they really want, but what are some of the solutions that leaders can do, businesses can do to better support the mental health of their people?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, once we get through uh, that, it's, it's, it's out of your comfort zone, you know, and and that's that's tough for some people to, to get through. But once they see and, and they see the human to human impact, they see the financial impact and then they're asked, OK, what can I do? And I, and I tell them sometimes you just have to understand normalizing conversations about mental health is still the best way to reduce stigma in the workplace. And the goal for leaders should honestly really just be uh, to promote the acceptance and inclusion of those dealing with the mental health issue. And and there's a number of of ways they can do that. Uh, Improving support systems, uh, spreading awareness. That's free. It doesn't cost anything to spread awareness. Uh, You know, create safe spaces and environments for discussions to take place. And I, I tell folks all the time, if you're wondering what it's going to take for you to compete with a larger agency with a bigger pay, with a bigger payroll, uh, hit all of these things and you'll find out right away what, what people really care about. Um, So the four kind of main things that I tell people that I think any size company can do is really just create a safe environment for discussion to take place. And it's, there's no better time to do that. The Mental Health Awareness Month. What does that look like, though? I mean, I think how, that, how I, does somebody start that? If they haven't
2: had discussions around mental health, how right. do you get that ball rolling in a company? Yeah,
0: I you know, the best time to do it is in a month like now because it's <laughs> so natural. There's so much stuff. And I think when you start putting out stuff, whether it's uh, internally on whatever platform you use, if it's Yammer, if it's Slack, if it's an internal <clears throat> website where uh, employees get their information, you start promoting these things. Uh, You can't say that almost a quarter of the population is suffering from a mental health condition and ignore it. So Mm -hmm. the best thing to do is understand that. Let me promote this environment and let me start letting people know this. We're going to talk about it, but you got to be consistent with it. Luckily for mental health, we got days all over the calendar. It's uh, natural opportunities for people to see that we're trying to promote education and awareness from Mental Health Awareness Month, the Minority Mental Health Awareness Month in July, the Suicide Awareness Month in September, to World Mental Health Day in October, we're all over the place, and it really provides organizations almost like a 16-month, uh, you know, landing, you know, strip to say we're going to start doing these things now, and then you can start moving into what I would call the next phase of sharing stories across all levels of lived experience and recovery. Uh, And I think when you do that, you make the environment safer to disclose, but leadership has to do that. That doesn't come from the bottom. That's got to come from leadership. Uh, One of the biggest things that we did at Grace Point when I took over the foundation, I was like the seventh executive director in 10 years. Mm. And uh, all we ever did was kind of promote the usual stuff and we didn't get any traction. The first thing I did was come in and ask every single board member, every single senior staff, why are you, why are you here? Why is this important to you? What's your passion of mental health? Let's share those stories because that's going to be, that's going to be the way we connect with other people who've experienced something similar, not the statistic of one in five. So that's what we did. And uh, it was great when we had our own employees read How the senior staff, how the board members, the foundation board, the corporate board, these personal stories of they're either a caregiver, they lost somebody, they were in active recovery. And that really changed the dynamic of how we were perceived in the community. I mean, we've been around for 73 years and serve over 30,000 people a year, but yet people still don't know we exist just because of how hard it is to talk about mental health. But once we switched, to a place to where we're going to utilize people who have networks, who have uh, run corporations, and share their connection to it. That made all the difference, and that's what I tell businesses. Uh, you know, let's share those stories. Let's let's uh, have when because I mean, let's think about it. When leaders are vulnerable, it's a whole different it's a whole different ballgame. So you know, when they share their experiences or those closest to them, it really creates the transparency and acceptance that that workplace needs. And so when employees experience something, when it's time to disclose, they feel they're in a safe environment to do so.
1: Well, you hit the big word. You, you hadn't said it much until the right at the end. You said the word vulnerable. <laughs> and for me, that's this such a vital part. And and I love that you you said that leaders have to go first. And, and I would say they have to go first on even the little things. I was on a podcast maybe a month or two ago, and they're saying so what is vulnerability in leadership i think that's one of the challenges people don't know what it is and i said well for example if you sit down with your team during covid and if i the leader come down and say you know i'm really struggling right now working from home i'm feeling overwhelmed i know i'm i'm actually more stressed than ever i'm working hard i'm working harder than i want to and the pushback i got from the guests they said oh i would never do that in my company i would absolutely never I might open up about some things, but I would never say anything like I feel like I'm working too hard. And I thought, but why not? Well, because you know I don't want people to think that I'm not willing to, and all this. And I said, there's that resistance to that vulnerability over the littlest thing, because I believe when a leader, the leader comes in and tells the big story, that's great. But the ability to come in and just tell the little story of the day, that you know, I had like a buddy of mine last night. I don't know. He gets on a call and he opens up by saying, I'm really struggling today because my cat died Hmm. Had this cat for 15 years and tells the story of how this cat died over the last month. It was, it wasn't gut wrenching. It was really just very, it spoke about how much he cared about the cat. And that's such a little thing, but it's not because you said at the beginning, one of the biggest challenges with mental health and is people think it's just them.
0: Well, I, I tell you, you know, I think people are still trying to wrap their arms around how impactful their own story is going to be. And, and again, we, we minimize our own experience. We minimize our own pain. We don't think that anyone can relate to it. But the more people that I work with that get comfortable in telling their own story, they are incredibly, almost overwhelmingly surprised how many people come up to them afterwards and either thank them for doing that, mm-hmm. uh, share a similar experience that they went through, um, you know, and it, it's almost it's almost completely positive. And and, I, and people, I tell people all the time, you know, it, let's think about it. Stories really have the ability uh, to impact us on a profound level, and especially when we feel a strong connection to the storyteller, but. They're also the common ground that allow us to communicate and overcome our differences. And uh, so we can better understand uh, not just each other, but, uh, but ourselves. And I think uh, you don't feel that until you get to a place where you can share your story. Um, You know, I, I probably told this to Jeff in the past, but you know, my mom passed away uh, about 16, 15, 16 years ago. Mm. And and she lived with mental illness and she also had a, a tremendous amount of health issues, physical health issues, cancer a few times, diabetes and some other things. And uh, so while she's going through all this as a caretaker, I'm not going to tell her what I'm experiencing. Uh, and I battled depression and anxiety for a long time and she died, never knew I was struggling mm. until I got to a place and I had some mentors and a couple of friends that said, you know, we feel that you might feel better uh, if you if you talk to other people that are experiencing that. And that was around, you know, 37, 38, 39 years old. And uh, now I'll be 47 in a couple of weeks and I haven't shut up. So uh, I think once you get to that place, and it, and it can be exhausting sometimes, reliving traumatic experiences and stuff like that but I think most people that get to that place where they can share are are overwhelmed with the response that encourages others to share and that just keeps cascading outward. And I think when leadership and organizations do that, they will find, uh, there will be a difference in how their employees react to them. There'll be a difference in how employees feel uh, safe at work. Uh, There'll be a difference in maybe uh, morale and engagement and loyalty. And these are all things that we want to create the environment that we want to work in, uh, for a considerable period of time.
2: Yeah. And the leaders have to go first. Always. Yeah. So, so, uh, we, we got to
1: honor time here, Ian, but I really want to ask this question and we'll decide, uh, I just, it's coming up for me. One of the challenges I see in this topic is that culturally, and personally, when I see someone in pain, I want to stop their pain. Um, and I've learned over the years that trying to comfort people is not my job. And that it doesn't mean I'm not going to support them, but there's a natural reaction, which is very loving, to make the pain go away. And I think as that actually is harming us. It's very loving, but that it's creating situations where I'm going to pretend I don't see what's going on. I'm not going to acknowledge that you're really hurting. I'm just going to make your hurt go away in the moment and say nice things to you and say, hey, it's okay, which is not to mean that that's bad, but what, you know, what role is this playing in our views of mental health and our conversations that innate desire we have to comfort the pain away versus supporting people to get help with the pain?
0: Hmm yeah i think it's our natural uh just it's it's, in, it's innate in humans we want to we want to help people uh especially if it's somebody we care about you know if it's somebody mm-hmm. we know like and trust if it's a family member or uh a good friend we don't want to see the people that we put on a pedestal uh hurting um so we those those initial reactions That I mentioned earlier, when when people didn't get the initial reaction they wanted, if I'm disclosing uh, to you, Jeff or to Craig, that I'm I'm having, uh, I'm feeling depressed and I'm having trouble getting out of bed and I'm I'm having trouble going to work and I'm my productivity's down and I don't know what to do, uh, what I don't want to hear is, it, it just give it some time, it'll get better, or go for a run, or you get know, a massage. Yeah. It's, you know, what you need is some self-care. Go to the Bahamas. Well, that's not self-care. Uh, you know, I think we've, we've, we've uh, glamorized what self-care is and, and people don't even know what it is anymore. And uh, what people, when they disclose anything, what they, what they want more than anything from the person they're talking to is for them just to listen. Mm. But that's hard. But you said, but we're just, we're inherently wanting to fix We listen to respond and and we don't listen to understand. And that is the problem. And we have to understand that sometimes the only thing out of our mouth that people want to hear is I believe you Mm -hmm. and just be there for them. You're you're not a mental health professional. You are a conduit to them getting help. You're not the help, but they trusted you uh, for you to be there for them. And sometimes just being there is, is worth more than any amount of advice you could ever come
2: that's really freeing, actually
0: it, well yeah. I, it I think it it frees people from feeling they're responsible yeah. to having to be able to have all the answers for their spouse or their child or their best friend or their favorite colleague uh, and um you know I, again i it, it's it's one of those things where I, I think you talk to anybody that's disclosed anything they're going to give you. Well, the initial reaction story wasn't that great. You know, I, I remember somebody told me if I just took emergency and started running more, I would feel better. I'm like, wait, what is my immune system, uh, you know, mix in my water have anything to do with? So it it, it was, uh, it's interesting where we feel uncomfortable as friends that we will say anything just to get out of that moment. And then mm-hmm. we go back and look back on that, like, oh, wow, did I did I whiff that, you know, they're a good yeah. friend and I gave, and I was not at my best. And I tell people, it's not about you being at your best. It's just about you being there. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what somebody who's, who's suffering from anything just wants. They just, they just want to know that somebody's there with them. So they're not alone anymore.
2: Great point.
1: Wow. Well, th- thank you, Ian. And thanks for all that you shared this stuff. Even beyond leadership, this matters. This is about people's lives. This is about people's lives and their families and their their mental health at the highest levels, the deepest levels. And I encourage anybody who's listening, have those conversations, go get some resources for yourself, ask for, you know, that's the big one. Are you willing to ask for help? Are you willing to ask for support? In this country, we suck at it. (laughs) You know, we suck at asking for help. It's still this stigma that somehow that is weak. That's my encouragement. Um, and go to that place, wherever it is, uh, that you can find that someone to just listen. And uh, um, and I get that it's scary. It needs to be brought in the light. I've said that over and over. Thank you for bringing more light to it, more wisdom, Ian. Thanks for the work you do. Uh, I do want to give you a chance here. We always let our guests promote anything or highlight anything going on for you in your world. What is that?
0: Wow. It's... Uh... You know, it's just so much going on right now. I'm, I'm excited to be in this space. I, I end almost every time I talk to anybody with uh, with just by saying that talking about mental health today isn't just a moment. Talking about mental health today is a movement. Mm-hmm. And if you're a leader in an organization and, and and that just seems completely ludicrous to you or or, or unnatural, um, I, I just beg you to please listen and understand why it's so important. Um, You know, I've been very fortunate in the last nine months to have a book published where it's just we're storytelling and we're not painting stigma with a broad brush. We're talking about uh, how people uh, have taken, uh, ordinary people have taken an extraordinary experience, or traumatic experience, uh, been honest about how they move forward in their path to wellness. And now what are they doing? to help others and serve others and move this conversation forward and that's what we have to do and that's what i'm excited to do and i appreciate uh you both for allowing me to be on your platform to continue to do that uh because that's what needs to happen
2: thanks for enlightening us uh and and our listeners because it it, uh, i definitely came away with a, a much richer understanding of what's what's going on
1: so ian what's the best way for people to connect with you
0: Easiest way uh, is probably social media, Twitter or Instagram at Ian M. Adair, I-A-N-M-A-D-A-I-R. Uh, I had to put the M in there uh, because there's a famous uh, magician in Canada that stole my social media thunder 11 years ago when I jumped on. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm glad to say now that uh, my social media presence squashes his, but uh, <laughs> he has since disappeared. Uh, but it's um, it's uh, I tell people all the time it's, it's probably inappropriate uh, if you somehow got my phone number to text me after seven o'clock because I'm, I'm I'm a family person. But if you DM me on Instagram or or Twitter at one in the morning, I'll probably respond because I I've, I have trouble sleeping, <laughs> so I, I usually do a lot of my work at that point. But uh, it, it's easy to. To find out more about mental health, I do mostly about mental health, mostly about leadership, nonprofit management uh, is through those platforms and happy to connect with anybody uh, that's looking to start something in their own organization or just has questions um, or how they feel like how they can get plugged in to help others. Happy to help steer you in the right direction.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Ian. And and we always wrap up with a a question and I'll give you this one today. What's the book? What's the book that people need to read?
0: Oh wow the the book okay the book that i love and I, and i hope maybe you guys have heard of it it's called O oh, Great One by David Novak uh CEO of Yum Brand Foods um he's written a, another book uh oh it's called uh taking people with you and "Oh Great One really is about uh the 10 principles of recognition and showing general showing and expressing and deploying gratitude and encouragement and inspiration in your organizations and the power recognition can have in turning organizations around. And we're coming out of COVID right now. Um, This was the book that grounded the recognition program. We started at Grace Point one month prior to COVID. And once you're going through a a hard time, especially in the mental health space, uh, and you see a lot over the last 14 months, morale was low. Um, engagement was low and we deployed a recognition program. We went all in on it, abandoned our old employee of the month program because it's hard to have an employee of the month when you have 620 employees. And now we recognize uh, 10 to 20 people a month. And it's just that power of recognition and seeing your colleagues get uh, actually recognized and rewarded for their good work. And that encourages you to do good work and it's been, it's been a game changer for us on our campus. I know it's been a game changer for other people. It's a short read. It's a great listen on Audible. Uh, so check out Oh Great One. Um, just about the awesome power of recognition and an organization.
1: Hmm. Well, thanks, Ian. Thanks for that and all you brought today and the, all the work you do
0: in the world. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you both.